Sarah, what's your first reaction upon coming in here? I know you've been in here before. <laughs> I haven't. I went, oh, wow. Uh, the scale of it, it's amazing. Like, this is a real treasure for Newcastle, for the nation. Look at the scale of it. Look at the space. Look at that wonderful void. It's just, it's a powerful space, isn't it, when you walk in here? And that's what it was about. It was about, about creating power for lifting coal onto the, uh, the coal ships. What an amazing space. It's just vast, isn't it? It is vast. Can you imagine working in here? Imagine the noise and, oh, gosh. What is the history of the Carrington Pump House, Sarah? This is fabulous being in here today. How exciting. Yeah, it's one of our major heritage icons and it really does exemplify what Newcastle was all about in the 19th century. So Newcastle became... New South Wales and probably Australia's most significant coal export port and the hydraulic power station was built in order to facilitate and allow for expansion of that coal export trade. So it was built around 1877 to um, a design by the ports engineer, Edward Moriarty, who in fact did a whole lot of other ports up and down the east coast of Australia. Um, here he basically designed the port facility so that within this basin here it would allow for reclamation of the mudflats. Carrington at that time wasn't developed residentially and it was still inundated by high tides and it was basically an oyster bank with with mud flats so Moriarty's design allowed for the filling of that area and the construction of the dike and then this western basin here um, which is the sea side of where we are now that would over time allow for a much deeper estuary depth so that you could bring larger ships in here. So the point about the hydraulic pump house was that in order to um, industrialise the export of coal and to increase its capacity to actually load coal onto ships, they needed a really significant source of power and so this was built in order to provide that source of power so that the hydraulic cranes on the dike could then start to lift a much higher capacity of coal onto the waiting coal ships. Between 1870 and 1930, Newcastle was exporting 70% of Australia's coal production. So that's a huge amount and that's why I suppose we still have a legacy today of being a really, well, being the biggest coal port in the Southern Hemisphere. We can't resolve from that at this point in time and that is a legacy that has basically been born out of the likes of this particular facility. The fact that at the time in the, the mid uh, 19th century from 1860s onwards the New South Wales government realised how important Newcastle was and that it had to invest significantly in its infrastructure in order to provide that expansion of the coal port so that's what happened with this building with the building of this building. So on the one hand it's its purpose is quite simple it's a pump house but it's such a majestic massive building that would have housed at the time a really powerful and, and significant piece of engineering. Well paradoxically I suppose yes its architecture is quite grand very classical it's it's designed in the manner of style externally but inside it's a very different story it's a totally utilitarian structure which um, fits the purpose to which it was built so this very large scale what are we talking 20 meter high 30 meter high 
um, void um, was so that you had very large equipment in here um, and it housed basically what was called an accumulator and the, the boilers to actually create the steam which then um, powered the, the steam cranes on the dike. So that's why it's such a large building and, and probably um, curiously it has a beautiful facade and it was treated with, you know, with all the, the pomp and circumstance that its, um, that its role would, would provide. Yet internally it's very much an industrial building and it's very utilitarian. I suspect if we were to build an equivalent sort of workhouse today it would continue to be built in quite a utilitarian manner on the outside too. Yeah. So I think we need to celebrate the guys <laughs> who who gave us yeah. a beautiful piece yeah. of industrial equipment. Yeah. I should have said the architect for the building was um, Barnett, the government architect. Ah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. That's, that explains a lot, yeah, doesn't that, it? That's why it's so classical and I suppose, you know, it's a bit of a folly really. The reason that it's so majestic on the outside is because he's played with the scale. So if you look at things like the windows and the doors, they're actually double height. Yeah. So in playing with the scale, it makes the building appear so much more strong and powerful and it sort of plays on the idea that, you know, we're basically... Um, harnessing and creating a really powerful economy. They are doorways for giants of men. They are, aren't they? Yeah. Funnily enough too, the craftsmen and the workers on this building at the same time were building Customs House. So that's why if you have a look at the coins on the side of this building and then the coins on Customs House, you can tell they were basically being crafted by the same people. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to go and have a, a cup of coffee or a beer with Barnett and say, so what are you thinking? Yeah, and what was that all about? What was the, you know, what was mannerism all about? The other thing too, interestingly, is that um, there are two, pump, two hydraulic pump houses in England, one in Swansea and I think the other one's in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, I, I might be wrong, but but they're very similar to this building in terms of its its architecture externally. So how does this fit in in the city, Sarah? Um, obviously there are discussions and negotiations and uh, research underway to, to figure out the future of this building. Where, where does it sit in the grander scheme of things? Because it's a, it's a gem, it's a bit unloved at the moment, but you're free to drive past and sit out the front and love it. It's an icon and it's part of the city's rich collection of historic buildings. So when you think about what's our collection in terms of our outdoor museum, you know, if we were going to look at our city as an outdoor museum, you'd think the cathedral, obviously, Nobby's, very obviously, Customs House, this building in particular. This building is is so good at telling a story about industry and the coal industry and how government invested in that industry in order to create a really strong economy in the 19th century. So this building really exemplifies that. Linked to Customs House, of course, because when you had a large port, you needed a customs facility. This building, of course, fits into that whole story about the expansion of the port during the 19th century. And at the time, too, I should have said, was state of the art. Mm. So there was nothing like this facility in the whole of Australia. Newcastle was the place, and Newcastle was the place where the government basically invested huge amounts of money. I mean, we can't even 
understand today how much the New South Wales government in the 1860s and 70s was investing in Newcastle, quite deliberately, quite intentionally. I mean, these people weren't stupid. They knew exactly what coal export meant for our economy. So that's why they were putting in millions of pounds, I mean, the equivalent of millions of dollars today, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds back then. These 12 metre high walls and the fact that you've got this void space does allow some lateral thinking in terms of how you, how you would use the space. I can see a mezzanine space and a loft which would be quite independent of the walls um, and in that way quite readily removable if you ever wanted to in future. But there's also a large floor plate in here and a large floor space so you know it's quite a quite a decent building in terms of its size, in terms of what you can do and there's three separate spaces that are all quite large with this wonderful light and wonderful volume. Sarah, you mentioned earlier um, that there had been a fire here a few years ago so we have a, a reasonably new roof that has been put up here in itself, beautiful. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's a stunning feature. Can you imagine uplighting that ceiling It's space? It's a, a timber ceiling and how lovely it is that when they replaced it, it was the Port Corp that did the roof, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. That they didn't just, you know, throw a bit of mm, corrugated right. iron on it for, <laughs> to fix it for now, right. but yeah. they did that. They used Penryn slates at the time. I'm pretty sure it was at the end of the 1990s, early 2000s when Port Corp did that work. And the idea was that after the fire, as long as you've got a really good watertight roof, you've got, you know, a hat, you're wearing a hat and you've got good, good shoes on, enclosed shoes, you can usually keep a building in, in fairly good condition for an extended period of time. So they imported Penryn slates from Wales, which is where the slate, um, the big slate quarries are, and replaced the slate. And I think what what they did was quite visionary in that even though the building's been vacant for Oh, what, 30 years? At least with that, with that roof, it's really watertight. There's no evidence of leaking on the internal walls. There's no water sitting around anywhere. And that at least allows it to have a fairly stable microclimate inside. So apart from the rising damp, which is a completely separate issue, mm. you, you don't have that um, deterioration from the ingress of water. The machinery has been removed. Most of what was in here has been removed. These old light fittings are fabulous. I love them. They are great, aren't they? They really add some character to the place. I would suspect they were probably put on um, in the 1950s. They, they look 50s to me. I assume they're light fittings, although they kind of look like an old shower head, don't they? <laughs> they do. Yeah, they do. Um, so Port Corporation... Um, or what was it, the MSB, Maritime Services yes. Board, I think it was called. They were using this space for fitting and turning and as a workshop area and they had um, some external buildings at the back which have now been demolished, which were also part of that function. So, yeah, um, it was used until the late 1980s, amazingly. It's quite amazing to think of the amount of hydraulic pressure that must have been formed here to drive those cranes along the dike. Absolutely, and that's and that technology was state of the art. So um, it came from Newcastle upon Tyne and there was nothing else like it in Australia. So this really was, um, you know, the first of its kind. The only other comparable powerhouse in Australia would be the one at Ultimo, um, which came 10 years later and was to basically service the domestic market. Mm. 
Um, it wasn't about coal trade. You can hardly imagine it now, like given, you know, we're just yeah. about to, to we're, we're looking at T4, aren't we? And, yeah. You know, those cranes are a completely different scale to this. But yeah, but, you know, they were the T4 of their day. Mm. When were the cranes taken out? Basically by 19, the 1950s, so five of the older hydraulic cranes were demolished in 1956 and then the last of the movable cranes was removed in 1964. The machinery inside here was dismantled and removed, including the accumulators, which they had to be cut into pieces so that they could be removed from inside the towers. And then the last two electric cranes were demolished in 1988, leaving the hydraulic powerhouse and a large number of the bases of the fixed hydraulic cranes, which we've talked about, as the last physical evidence of this facility. Casting your professional eye around here, what are the challenges for a possible reuse of this building? I think the fact that it's not an enclosed space and probably one of the most serious threats to the fabric that I can see is this issue of rising damp. So you've basically got sub walls which are made of um, white sandstone. which Huge sandstone blocks and, and together that's like five feet high. Yeah and the sandstone came from Sydney quarries so a a replacement source is not going to be easy to find. However, having said that, the rising damp actually needs to be addressed and treated before you can even begin to, you know, salvage or do any repairs of those sandstone blocks. But it's not impossible. It's just difficult and it's got to be managed like anything else so it's got to be properly assessed, it's got to be monitored. There'd probably be a quite a significant desalination process which is where you poultice poultice the um, the outside of the sandstone in order to remove the the salt as we talked about with Christchurch Cathedral yeah we've talked about that as well there yeah it's so I think the rising damp is probably one of the most serious issues at the moment in that you can appreciate that over time Um, rising damp can sort of start and not be so bad but it's like rust it becomes a a biological process of decay that exponentially can just become so bad at the end of the day that you can't treat it so I think that's probably one of the most serious threats at the moment but having said that it's in localized area so area so it's not like you know it's a problem that is throughout the building it's only in localized small pockets so but in this part of the wall for example you've got the huge sandstone blocks at the foot of them you can see that where they're turning back to sand yes yes that that is that is right so it's a matter of getting in there and working out well is the damp proof course bridged or what where is the damp where is the moisture coming from resolving that first and then beginning a process of um, treatment and desalination so it's not impossible it just needs a conservator and a heritage architect with really good understanding of how these processes work in order to get in there and start to treat it for the long term.